0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Connecting changes everything. at
2: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And I thought we should start today... With a question about science, one that is maybe more vexing the more you think about it. So, an often unexamined assumption that undergirds scientific investigation, all of science, is this idea that there are laws of nature, right? And that those laws are are physically fundamental and they apply everywhere and they are never violated, right?
1: Yeah, it would be um it would be catastrophic if science changed from uh, say country to country or county to county. Right, you go across
0: the state line and you fall up. Right. Yeah. Uh so water boils at 100 degrees Celsius or 212 Fahrenheit in my kitchen, it should also boil at the same temperature in my bedroom or in the kitchen of the white castle down the street or 100 miles away in a different town, right? Now, you might interrupt there and say, oh, but actually, water sometimes does boil at a different temperature, right? Like at high elevations, uh, where atmospheric pressure is lower, it's easier for water to boil because there's less pressure pressing down on the water. So it actually does boil at a lower temperature. Like at 3,000 meters, water boils at more like 90 degrees Celsius. And in fact, Robert, I don't know if you've ever read these. There are great stories that take this to the extreme. Did you know about the unbearable sadness of boiling potatoes on Mount Everest? No, So there are these stories about mountaineers trying to cook on Mount Everest, and they would boil potatoes in a pot of water to eat them, but they'd boil them, and they'd boil them, and boil them for hours and hours, and after hours of cooking, the potatoes were still basically raw, and the problem is— on Mount Everest, the, you're up so high that the boiling point is so low, the boiling water in the pot is not hot enough to cook the taters. Huh. It's like sort of like trying to cook them in hot tap water, even though it's boiling. It's a, In fact, I would say it's actually like an inverse pressure cooker, right? You know, a pressure cooker allows your food to get hotter because of the increased pressure. Going up on Mount Everest and trying to cook something is like doing the opposite. <laughs> yes, Uh, But actually, you know, there we've not discovered an absence of an underlying law just because water boils at a different temperature at different elevations. What we've actually discovered is a deeper underlying law that the boiling point of a liquid varies along with pressure and that that relationship is mathematically deterministic. And I would say this is the assumption that pretty much guides almost all of applied science in the world today. It's the idea that the laws of physics are out there and they don't change or vary depending on special cases or where you are. But how do we know that conditions on the Earth and the moon might be different but that the underlying physical laws that give rise to those conditions are exactly the same? And maybe one thing that's important to point out in understanding this is that people haven't always thought this way. There is a powerful tradition going back into the ancient world, sort of viewing the behaviors of things in reality as a large collection of special cases governed by their own special essences and, and by by special circumstances, maybe like divine intervention, maybe like some types of magic, maybe just by, you know, the, the essence of the, the way a person falls is different than the way a planet falls because a planet is a different thing than a person. And so you, you'd end up with the idea that the heavens are not subject to to the same physical forces as the Earth. And we see this all throughout ancient cosmology, just thinking that there are different different laws applying to different places and circumstances in the universe. Now, on one hand, you could argue that, well we don't really know that physical laws are the same everywhere, right? And and that's kind of true. Like, at the very edges of our understanding, there could be ways of arguing that physical laws aren't really laws. You know, maybe they're just generalizations we make based on observation. Or maybe there could be cosmological scenarios when they're different. You know, maybe in the beginning of the universe the laws were different or could have been different. But for the most purposes in the present, that assumption that, that the physical laws are the same everywhere has proven extremely Extremely useful in generating accurate scientific theories that make correct predictions and create powerful technology. So, I, I wanted to think about at the beginning of today where did this assumption of the uniformity of physical laws come from? How did we end up thinking this way about the world that there's just sort of like a set of underlying ways that things work and that that governs everything?
1: Well, as the title of the show uh, indicates, uh, we're going to tie it to an invention. You're exactly right. Now,
0: we don't want to tie it entirely to this invention because there are a bunch of different strains of thinking throughout history that I think have contributed to this way of seeing the world that we generally share now. But I believe one really powerful moment of transition here— was centered around a particular piece of technology. And that technology is the subject of today's
1: episode, which is the telescope. Yes. More specifically, the optical telescope.
0: Right. Now, we're just doing one episode today here. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to be able to focus on all the different kinds of telescopes. Uh, We may come back to them in the future. But we're going to be focusing on specifically the earliest Optical refracting telescopes,
1: right? And uh, and yeah, it's really it, it really is kind of hard to to overstate the importance of the telescope in the history of science and in the history of our understanding of the cosmos. Yeah, uh, there's a great quote about the invention from the invention of the telescope by Albert Van Helden from 1977. Uh, van helden writes quote among the scientific instruments which have played an important role in the growth of man's knowledge of the world around him the telescope occupies a position of historic preeminence rivaled only by the microscope which was a natural outgrowth of the telescope In a real sense, the telescope can be considered the prototype of modern scientific instruments and learned men in the 17th century, the first century of its existence, were acutely aware of its important role in the formation of a new astronomy.
0: Yeah, and some of the earliest accounts of what was viewed through the very first telescopes, you can you can kind of feel the electricity coming off of the writing, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. like the excitement with seeing stuff that not just seeing new things. I mean, we still see new things in the heavens that people have never seen before. Uh just this year there was the very first direct imaging of a black hole, not using an optical telescope, but yeah, uh but using, you know, a a form of magnifying the heavens. And that was astonishing because we were looking at something we'd never seen before. But as amazing as that was, what if instead of just seeing a new thing, you were able to see the universe in a completely different way that now for the first time you can look at really anything beyond the moon as more than a point of light?
1: Yeah, it's really – I mean it's really hard to avoid optical metaphors for this optical technology. Like I want to think it's like Mm – it's like being able—having poor eyesight your entire life and then finally putting on a pair of glasses mm-hmm. and seeing things come into sharper uh, detail, you know, uh, solidifying things that you suspected already but also bringing, you know, fine print into view that was uh, you know, invisible to you previously, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why the telescope is such, um, you know, a major invention is that we are predominantly, you know, optical beings. We depend mm-hmm. so much on our sense of sight. And this so greatly uh, improved our ability to to optically see things.
0: Well, yeah. I mean w- one thing that's worth thinking about is the very idea that uh – that that we could even view the heavens with a with a viewing instrument, you know, with a magnification device. Mm-hmm. That's entirely contingent on the details of life on planet Earth. If you go to another planet where maybe life forms evolved at the bottom of an ocean around geothermal vents, or growing off of some kind of like you know chemosynthesis process in a clouded hazy atmosphere like that of Venus or that right. of Titan, where you just can't you can't see the sky. Yeah, uh, I mean, th- there's no reason we had to evolve on a planet where where you could look at the stars every night, but somehow we
1: did. And of course, those stars have always intrigued us. I mean, human history is a, a story of uh, of people's looking to the heavens and trying to figure out what is going on up there.
0: Yeah, and th- that's a great point we should start with, which is that astronomy did not begin with the telescope. Astronomy long predates the telescope. There is a vast tradition of naked eye astronomy going back in ancient history. And sometimes it's astonishing what ancient and medieval astronomers could figure out, could discover Without optical telescopes, just using the naked eye, sometimes maybe in conjunction with other primitive tools like measuring instruments or something. Uh, I mean, for starters, like other planets were known before, uh, before
1: the telescope, right? Oh, yeah. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn are all observable with the naked eye. Uh, Uranus and Neptune are generally considered to be only visible via the telescope with, with an asterisk there.
0: Yeah, Uranus is uh, – Uranus, uh, the, we always fight about how to pronounce this. Uranus, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uranus is technically, I think, visible with the naked eye under extremely favorable conditions, but it's very, very faint. It was officially usually uh, recognized as being discovered by William Herschel in 1781 with a telescope, of course. Uh, telescopes had been around for a, a good long while in 1781. But it had probably been observed by others in centuries past, who thought it was some kind of faint star, just barely visible. Uh, Herschel actually initially thought Uranus was a comet. Hmm.
1: Uh, on our other podcast, stuff to blow your mind, we we've been kind of considering the different planets and their uh, and their their uh, their moons uh, hmm. from time to time. We really we really need to go to uh, look at the outer planets a little more.
0: Oh yeah, I wonder if
1: there's there's much to
0: say there. I feel like the really sexy moons. Uh, show up around Saturn and and Jupiter. Like on on Jupiter, you've got Europa, which is everybody's favorite to find some potential life at because they think there are oceans underneath the icy crust. And then you've got Io, which is just a wonderful yellow hell of volcanoes Mm -hmm. and sulfur and all that great stuff. And then around Saturn, of course, you've got Titan, which is an intriguing mystery. I'm not aware of anything like that going on with Neptune or or Uranus, but maybe I haven't given them a fair shake. Well, I
1: mean, the planets themselves, I think, would be be good uh, Uh topics, you know. Uh, just so we can say that we've covered all of them, uh, you know, just in time to have to, like, update with new information for all of them. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, I can't—we'll do We'll do an episode on Uranus just so we can pronounce it 17 different ways.
1: <laughs> yeah, I believe a listener uh, provided a different uh, pronunciation recently, didn't they?
0: we heard—I think we've heard Uranus, of course. We've heard Uranus. We've heard Uranos. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I think that's it for now. Oh, but we got to bring it back to the telescope. Okay, so here, here's a question I wonder about. How many stars— can you actually see without a telescope? I know there's got to be some general cutoff point that most people aren't going to be able to see stars below a certain brightness.
1: Yes. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a system here for determining how visible uh, various objects are. And there is a ballpark number. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to astronomer uh, Dorit Hofleit of Yale University, the total number of stars in the sky that can currently be seen from both hemispheres and, and given optimal conditions is 9,096 or 4,548 stars per hemisphere, give or take, depending on the position and the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, astronomers use the magnitude scale to measure star and planet brightness. So the higher the number, the fainter the object is in the sky. Mm-hmm. So the naked eye limit for most humans is 6.5. Okay. Now, really bright objects actually have a negative rating on this scale. So a full moon is a negative 12.7, uh-huh. highly visible. Right. And the sun— <laughs> seen, I've seen that. Yeah, everybody's seen this. It uh, is a negative 26.7. Now, I was looking at an article on this from Sky and Telescope, which is a uh, a wonderful website for anyone that's interested in astronomy. Mm -hmm. And um, Bob King has an article from 2014 titled, 9,096 stars in the sky, is that all? (laughs) And and he shares the following – I thought it was just a nice quote about – the visibility that this, uh, you know, this brings up. Uh-huh. Quote, while the total number of naked-eye stars may seem unimpressive, consider what happens in the sky in and around cities, where most of us live. From the suburbs, the magnitude limit is around plus four for a worldwide total of about 900 stars, or half that uh, for your location. If we set the city limit at magnitude plus two, stars similar to the Big Dipper in brightness, we're left with just 70 stars worldwide, or 35 stars visible from, say, downtown Chicago or Boston. Right,
0: because you're only ever seeing half. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's a paltry number of stars. It kind of
1: makes me hate our cities. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, light pollution is a, a real detriment to, uh, you know, any, any kind of, uh, you know, amateur or certainly professional astronomy.
0: I think I've mentioned this on one of our podcasts before, and at the risk of of getting sappy— I one time went to a rural area in Oregon, you know, not near any big cities. And I guess it must have been very clear and, mm-hmm. and dry in the night and and I went outside and I remember I saw so many stars. I I felt like I was going to fall over. I oh, not yeah. it was overwhelming how different the the sky is in a really dark sky area.
1: Oh yeah, I had a similar experience in uh, Georgia's own Okefenokee Swamp, which mm-hmm. is uh, an area where there's just there's no light pollution. You get out in just the midst of this enormous swamp land, mm-hmm. and the stars are just overwhelming. Like it's no wonder that people sometimes, uh, in, in a, say that they've encountered a you know they've seen a UFO in the sky. Uh-huh. Um, because in a way it's like like seeing the cosmos like that um you know unfiltered by light pollution it uh, it you know it, it's almost like seeing a, a, some sort of uh, alien spaceship you know it, you're you're confronted with the enormity of the cosmos
0: it was a borderline religious experience for yeah. me i
1: mean it felt like a, it felt like a revelation
0: i've gone my whole life on earth looking up at the sky at night and never seen anything like this
1: now that being said an informed look at the skies, even from a city uh, such as Atlanta, you can you can still have some, some, you know some interesting uh, you know uh, astronomical observations. Like it's it's. It's wonderful to be able to say pinpoint Mars in the sky mm-hmm. and point it out to somebody and, and think about the fact that that is it. This is the planet that we've – you know that you hear about on the news, that you see these – this footage of. That so many questions uh, have been asked about. There it is in the sky. I am observing it.
0: Oh yeah, I've I've tried to cultivate that skill before, being able to just point things out in the sky, and I've never gotten good at it. Well, they,
1: the apps really help these days. Yeah, they there's do. so many great, um, uh, you know, star and planet ID apps. <laughs> you can sort of cheat off of those and then have the experience. You know, yeah, I do like trying to
0: find the direction of the center of the galaxy at any given time, and point in the direction of Sagittarius A star, <laughs> the, uh, the supermassive black hole, which I know our descendants must be destined to someday just drive straight into. <laughs> Now of course all the stuff we were just talking about is looking up with the naked eye. With the telescope, things are very different, right? Because they magnify light. So, uh, so with just the original refracting optical telescope, which was just uh, a, a convex lens that gathered light from a wider field, and then it was paired at a certain distance with a concave eyepiece. Uh, Galileo, when he was looking into the sky, was astonished by what he saw. He wrote, I have seen stars in myriads which have never been seen before and which surpass the old previously known stars in number more than 10
1: times. Right. I mean, we have to think back to that magnitude scale, you know, and the idea that suddenly uh, cosmic bodies of a magnitude or or more beyond previous human observation are now visible. Yeah. Uh, Like it's – You know, it's really crazy to imagine that. You really have to underline that statement.
0: Yeah, and this would have been at the beginning of the 1600s. He's using the most primitive telescopes. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, we see – it's funny. We can look into like a little tiny patch of the sky where before there would have been nothing. And with the powerful telescopes of today, we zoom in and see almost like a – it's like when you, you know, zoom in on water with a microscope and you see all the little bacteria living in it. Except now we see galaxies full of stars where previously we thought – there was nothing
1: yeah all right well on that note we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we're going to get to the question who invented the telescope where did it come from and and more importantly like what does it say about the time uh the timing of this invention shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples
0: All right, we're back. So now we're talking about the invention of the original optical telescope. And we should start off saying at the the very top that credit for the invention of the telescope is highly disputed. What counts, you know, do just like descriptions written in a book count if we don't have evidence that it was actually made? What were people actually talking about when they wrote about various kinds of magnification? Historically, credit for the invention of the telescope is most often given to a figure we're going to mention in just a minute, a Dutch spectacle maker named uh, Hans Lipperschei or Hans Lipperschei. Or Lippershey is how uh, is I, I heard it. I've seen uh, multiple different pronunciations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so lippers Lippershey, lippers high, we'll, we'll say them all. Uh, but there are a lot of different contenders that that have competed in the minds of historians and we won't have time to mention them all. We will highlight a few.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's we, we really have to stress that not only it's not just one of these things where it was disputed later, where like mm-hmm. historians are saying, actually, this person working in this other land uh, had, uh, you know, some other ideas or seemed to have a prototype. And no, I mean, it was disputed at the time in Leprisset's own country. Yeah, And, and we'll it, touch on the, the details of that. Well, I think one of the reasons that it's so disputed is that the Essential
0: technology for creating the telescope had existed for a long time before
1: anybody ever made a telescope. Exactly. So Lippershey lived 1570 through 1619. And it's worth noting that that here at, at this point in in his life he was of course a spectacle maker mm-hmm. and spectacles had been around in Europe for at least 3 centuries. Uh, And and I'd actually love to come back to a future episode of Invention where we'll talk about those three centuries, talk Mm -hmm. about uh, glasses, spectacles, where they came from. But uh, basically the idea is as Europe emerged from the Dark Ages and its economy rebounded from the invasions of the Dark Ages, it became increasingly beneficial to ensure that functional eyesight – was maintained in their aging scholars and scribes. right? So that that's why eyeglasses uh, and spe- well, that's why spectacles uh, emerge really in Europe.
0: Well, right. I mean, eyeglasses would be a technology that extended the working life of people who copied documents for a living. Right. And because they didn't have a printing press yet in, in some of that time, uh, hand copying of documents was incredibly important for right. preserving
1: knowledge and spreading it. Yeah, this is the necessity uh, in the the invention uh, scenario here. Um, you know, uh, eyeglasses are largely attributed to uh, Venetian inventions sometime around 1300. Mm-hmm. And for our fellow Name of the Rose fans out there, uh, the story of murders in a medieval abbey, uh, they take place in 1327, and their their use uh, certainly factors into Umberto Eco's plot. The use
0: of spectacles. Yes. Yeah. The main detective in the story, William of Baskerville, he has a pair of spectacles, but they're not like normal, right? It's not like, oh, you can just go get new. New spectacles somewhere, like if he loses them, that's a problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. But yeah, some 300 years separate the birth of spectacles and ultimately the birth of the spectacle-making trade uh, f- uh, from this event, right, where a spectacle maker takes the technology and creates a telescope out of it. And then the reason for creating this telescope is uh, it turns out it's not to gaze at the heavens, but to better kill people on a battlefield. Uh, I see. Yeah. So uh, basically, and this is, this is the story as it specifically concerns Lippersay. Uh, during the early 1600s, Dutch military reformer Prince Maurice of Nassau offered monetary rewards for any inventions that could help modernize the Dutch fighting force. Mm-hmm. Lippersay took his knowledge of spectacles and applied them to the problem, developing uh, what he called the looker, uh, which he filed a patent for in 1608. And there are varying versions of Le Perseille's eureka moment, ranging from him observing children playing with lenses in his shop mm-hmm. and, and watching them, you know, hold one lens up and then hold the other lens up and make uh, objects at a distance appear closer. Uh, and then there are also just accusations that he, he flat out stole the idea from someone else. Uh-huh. And we'll get to that as well. Uh, but – uh, the question that emerges from all of this is, wouldn't this invention have been obvious to anyone familiar with the 300-year-old technology of spectacles?
0: Well, yeah. So you've, uh, spectacles work on the principle of magnification through uh, refraction through glass. So you've got glass as a transparent medium. Mm-hmm. You can make a rounded edge on the outside of one of these disks of glass. Right. Like,
1: and basically, it's, it's all detailed in this uh, this this story of children playing with, with with lenses, mm-hmm. like someone would have surely seen that before, and you know this is ultimately exactly why the States General of the Netherlands denied his patent application, uh-huh. uh, as well as the application of two other individuals, uh, Jacob uh, Midius, a lens maker from a family of glass workers, and Zacharias Johnson, a spectacle maker.
0: Yeah, uh, and they, they've both been proposed as the alternate inventor of the telescope,
1: right? And in other names and plots are thrown. In into the mix as well. And, and sometimes the microscope is likewise brought up because the microscope, as we already uh, mentioned or, or brought up in a, that quote we read, is kind of an extension of the same technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, uh, when Lipperstein sought a 30-year patent or he also was going to settle for a yearly pension to prevent the looker sale to rival kingdoms, the state's general declared that the invention was already too widely known and too easy to copy. Still, the prince awarded <laughs> lipper say nine hundred florins and asked him to make the looker uh, binocular.
0: Oh, okay, for two eyes.
1: Yeah. So, just not very impressed about the telescope. Well, impressed enough to pay him nine hundred florins, okay. you know, and to and to use it. But uh, I, you know, I, I guess you can well imagine the situation where the military uh, individuals are, are saying, "Yes, this sounds great. We're going to revolutionize everything." And then the patent office is like, "Okay." Fine, but let's not get carried away. Let's not give this guy a patent because the the, infra, the the knowledge of this technology is already out there.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the sources we were both looking at about this story of the invention of the telescope is the the great. Uh, uh, James Burke's discussion in connections. And one of the the things he does that's interesting is he connects the story of the invention of the telescope. I guess he's all about creating connections. Uh, he connects it to the invention of the timepiece, mm-hmm. which I guess is something else going on in the Dutch economy at the time, the the desire to make more accurate timepieces. Because like he writes about how the, the springs of low quality yeah. and the watches of the time would mean that some watches might lose four minutes a day.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, the telescope is we'll probably you know, continue to touch on here, it, it has this this definite relationship with precision. Yeah. And precision instruments of the time and those that would come afterwards. Um but uh Burke also can you know makes the a point here about the connection between invention and social need. Mm-hmm. While there was a social need for spectacles, which we, we've already mentioned, there was not one for the telescope. And I just want to read a quote from Connections. Again, Connections was both a television series, but also is a is a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. Uh, both are uh, you know widely available out there. If you want to pick it out, pick it up. And if you're a fan of of this podcast and just the history of technology and inventions, you really can't go wrong with Connections. So Burke writes, quote. But there was no demand for the telescope during this period, which was prior to the invention of gunpowder and the use of the cannon on the battlefield, when the view of the universe precluded the existence of planetary bodies as three-dimensional observable phenomena. This is why the moment of invention is so often identified with the moment in which the artifact comes into use. In many cases, there are times when an invention is technologically possible and in which indeed it may appear necessary as the telescope may have, but without a market the idea will not sell. And in the absence of the technical and social infrastructure to support it, the invention will not survive.
0: This reminds me of the episode or episode, I think we did a couple on the wheel. Yeah. uh, A technology that it appears within many cultures around the world for a long time, there was the perfect capability to make it. And familiarity with the concept. So it's like they understood what a wheel was and they had everything they needed to make wheels. They just didn't make wheeled vehicles. Uh, and so the question is like, why? Why would you? Why would you know how to do it and have everything you need to do it, but not yet do it? And Burke is pointing out that sometimes it just it does it doesn't occur to people that there's a particular
1: use for a thing. By the way, Burke is referring to the Western invention and use of gunpowder here, which, which has a history very worthy of its own invention episode in the future. Mm-hmm. But the short version is that the Chinese were aware of gunpowder as early as the 9th century, and there are various accounts of gunpowder in Europe going back to the 1300s. But guns would not become a military technology worthy of telescopic sights for some time, basically 1776, I believe, and warfare itself hadn't de- evolved to depend on it yet. So Burke's argument is that the technological Advancements of warfare didn't reach the point, point uh, you know, at which this sort of lens technology promised, uh, or even, uh, you know, suggested a real payoff, not until the dawn of the 1600s. And so the telescope was finally born into an age increasingly in need of long-distance vision for military purposes and a tool to stargaze beyond the limits of the human eye. Again, to Burke's point, we can sit around all day and think of all, about all the places and times it would have been useful before the 17th century uh, and, and could have been applied. I mean, mm-hmm. na- navigation seems a, you know, one of the key possibilities to me. Right. But ultimately, that's just not how it came together. But can't, but it certainly did come together. And in fact, less than two years after Lippershey's patent, uh, an individual by the name of Galileo published a groundbreaking treatise uh, and we'll come back to Galileo in just a little bit.
0: Yeah, before we get to Galileo though, we should talk about a, a few of the other names that have been suggested as alternate inventors of the telescope because as we said – there there were a bunch of people who could have been maybe given credit depending on what counts what kind of evidence you allow mm-hmm. one alternative that might not be surprising given given a lot of the optical advances that uh that existed in the uh in the muslim world especially in the the medieval period is that several names from the Arab world showed up on this list.
1: Yeah, yeah. For starters, uh, like a key individual is uh, Al-Hazan, which is the the Latin name uh, for uh, for the mathematician and astronomer uh, Ibn al-Hatham, who lived 965 through 1040 uh, CE. Um A.K.A. Abu Ali al-Hafim, is um, he, a major figure. Particularly, we have to consider his book of optics, which dealt with magnification and refraction, and which ultimately influenced the technological traditions that would lead to the invention of the telescope. At mm. least, uh, he wrote commentaries on Aristotle, Euclid, Ptolemy, and Galen. His writings were uh, pretty influential in the in the West, at the uh, you know particularly uh, among the likes of Bacon and Kepler. Uh, Quote, uh, this is from O.S. Marshall, um, uh, al and the Telescope. He observed the magnifying power of spheres and lenses and experimented with cylindrical, concave and parabolic metal mirrors. So basically, he's a figure that some consider capable of inventing the telescope. Like if you're looking in history for, you know, to pinpoint an individual who who could have very well created a telescope, um, mm-hmm. al Hazen is your guy. Uh, though there is, it doesn't seem to be any clear evidence that he did, but certainly all the skills were on the table some 600 years before Galileo. Yeah, Another individual um, in the Arab world that pops up is um, Taki al-Din, or... Um, Uh, Taki ad-din Muhammad ibn Maruf. Uh, He was an Ottoman astronomer of note. He lived 1526 through 1585, so much closer to the time period we're discussing um, uh, in uh, in European traditions here for the invention of the telescope. And uh, he invented a number of pumps and clocks, uh, including an astronomical clock. So again, we're getting down to the technology of precision again. And he uh, apparently described an invention that made faraway objects appear closer. So it's possible that he's talking about a telescope there. It's possible that he invented a telescope in roughly 1574, mm-hmm. but there's there's no clear consensus on this. Uh, but again, an individual where we, we can look to and say, this it's possible this individual created a telescope, and if they didn't there's no reason why they couldn't have. You yeah. know, they had again all the tools were on the table.
0: Uh, there, there have been other suggestions of some previous uh, figures from England, like Roger Bacon, or like this guy named Leonard Diggis, who was apparently uh, he he was into surveying.
1: Yeah, and this is uh, to show you just like the, the how how removed some of the descriptions are. Uh-huh. Uh, this was basically his son, Leonard Diggins' son, wrote that he u- that his father had used a proportional glass to view distant objects. And this would have been the mid-1500s. And so some historians have made a case for this, saying, like, this: they're talking about a telescope. Mm-hmm. This guy invented a telescope. But we just don't have much to go on beyond that.
0: All right, this next guy I want to talk about is not an especially strong contender, at least I don't think so, for actually having invented a telescope. Uh, I, I would say that the credit that is possibly given to him or was claimed by him for having invented a telescope seems to be based on uh, some vaguely written passages about being able to see things at a distance through through refractive lenses. But, uh, but I just wanted to talk about him because he is very weird and a fascinating figure. And the more I found out about him, the more I wanted to, to go deep. His name is Giovanni Battista della Porta or Giambattista della Porta, an Italian natural philosopher, a minor Neapolitan noble, born around 1535, died in 1615. Sometimes depicted as something of a sorcerer, sometimes as an enthusiast of the sciences, sometimes as a, quote, professor of secrets. He was most notably, I think, the author of a popular book called Magia Naturalis, meaning natural magic, which was a sort of encyclopedia of marvels and curiosities about the world. And this book has got everything. It's It, it encompasses everything from facts about geology and chemistry to cosmetic beauty tips. I think it's got cooking tips in it. It's got demonology and his <laughs> opinions on it, like a, like a cult philosophy. And then it's got this huge section on cryptography, including a whole chapter about how to send secret messages inside eggs.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, well, I, I want to hear about these eggs, but but I do want to point out that he would have been a contemporary of John Dee, uh, oh, the, yeah. the English... Uh, uh, um uh, scientist, spy, uh, occultist uh, who is also interested in cryptography. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, uh, this was definitely a time to be into all of these things. But now do tell me about these eggs. oh, yeah, it sounds like a type. This yes, like a sixteenth century, seventeenth
0: century type of dude who's into demonology and refraction lenses <laughs> and all that. yeah, so uh, cri- sending secret messages inside eggs, eggs, egg based cryptography. Why eggs? Well, in Magia Naturalis, De La Porta writes that, quote, because when prisons are shut, eggs are not stopped by the papal inquisition and no fraud is suspected to be in them.
1: <laughs> well, not until you wrote about it in your book <laughs> exactly. of
0: secrets. Uh, so he writes about this. But yeah, the idea is that De La Porta and many of his friends – were targets of the Italian Inquisition. of course the Inquisition's going on at the time. Uh, and apparently while you could not pass letters to friends imprisoned by the inquisitors, at least not without those letters being read or censored or something, you could send your friends eggs, you know, you just bring them eggs in prison. So he explains many different methods for smuggling secret messages inside eggs, including by chemically treating the eggs. One method involves writing the message on paper. So you write out a letter and then you soften the eggshell with vinegar and you cut a tiny hole in the shell with a knife and insert the letter written on paper into the egg. And then you put the egg in cold water to firm up the egg again and disguise the cut. Another method involves writing the message on the shell of the egg with an ink that's like a specially prepared ink made out of galls, alum, and pickle, and whatever that means. He says pickle. (laughs) And um, And then boiling the egg and supposedly the message will wash off of the outer shell when the egg boils. But then when the egg is peeled, the message will appear written on the egg white inside because oh my goodness. This, this stuff leeches through the shell.
1: This is incredible. Why is this not our, uh, our Easter um, uh, messaging tradition?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. The kids, they go out hunting for eggs in the grass and then they pick one up that says, do not submit to the inquisitors. Do not confess. <laughs> do not confess that we summoned the power of payment. But anyway, also in Magia Naturalis, there's a whole volume on lenses and refraction containing these vaguely written passages that mention, uh, you know, combining lenses and the ability to see things across distance. This apparently led to the later misunderstanding that he may have prefigured the invention of the telescope by uh, Lippershey or Lippershey or Lippershey or, or, or however you say it, uh, and the other contemporaries. But modern scholars, I think, seem to be doubtful that Della Porto was actually describing a telescope in his writings. And and there's certainly no record of him making or using one, though it appears he did work with some other types of lenses, more in the realm of spectacles or magnifying glass.
1: And of course, John Dee uh, is, is notable for having at least one lens of note, that being a, a more of a, like a magical black mirror, uh-huh. uh, which, is, uh, which is currently, I believe, on display in the British Museum. Oh, I'd like to see that. Yeah, look into it if you get a chance. It's uh, probably a mirror of some historical mischief. Yeah, uh, with uh, Mesoamerican origins, I believe. Uh, Really? uh, Christian and I did a a two-parter on Stuff to Blow Your Mind about John Dee, uh, where we uh, discussed the details of it.
0: Well, I think maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can discuss the earliest uses of the telescope and its impact on, on world history. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
1: All right, we're back. So as, as we've discussed, the world was finally ready for the telescope. The technology was there, the understanding of optics, the the ability to craft the lenses. And, and now you also had the necessity, the market for it. People were clamoring for it. Uh, and we had a, a, the, a, the, both the military uh, interested in the creation of, of telescopes, but then you had – plenty of stargazers, plenty of astronomers who were hungry for such a device.
0: Yeah, I'd say that even though it was commissioned as a weapon of war, like the real bomb that it set off was this more theological, philosophical, scientific one. And so, of course, we have to talk about Galileo. Now, Galileo Galilei was a natural philosopher of the Italian Renaissance. He was uh, the son of a cloth merchant from the city of Pisa. He lived 1564 to 1642. And he was in many ways uh, a sort of uh, an ideal heretic, right? <laughs> like we don't like to overplay the mythology of genius and historical inventors. But I think with Galileo, this is one case, at least in my mind, where you can you can really make the case for a person who truly deserves to be thought of as a revolutionary genius, who systematically challenged the scientific and philosophical misconceptions of his day with kind of mercilessly careful thought and observation. And a champion of empirical method, you know, the the, the the mindset that says, okay, if you've got an idea about how the world is and a way of looking at the world to check and see if the idea is right, you should look and check. Mm-hmm. So Galileo is best known today for landing a fatal blow against the theory of geocentrism. Under classic geocentric cosmology, the Earth was the center of the universe and the moon and the sun and all the planets orbited around the Earth. Now, again, today we know that the Earth rotates, which is why the sky seems to spin around the Earth. But the Earth feels pretty solid, doesn't it, right? It doesn't feel like it's moving and we can watch the sky moving all around us. So if you had to, how would you actually prove that objects in the sky
1: didn't orbit the Earth? Well, part of it is, of course, observe if you get to the point where you're tracking these objects that are presumably moving around the Earth, mm-hmm. and then you you begin to notice that they don't really behave like objects that are that are orbiting around something. You know?
0: well, well, right, and that had been known for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you'd see that the planets don't they the planets don't seem to perfectly go
1: around the Earth in a in a steady pattern. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah. So, like closer inspection of this model of the the cosmos mm-hmm. uh, ultimately ended up showing all these problems, and the you know. That clearly showed that, that our understanding was not perfect. Something was wrong with this model.
0: Right. So Galileo did not invent the theory of heliocentrism, which is the idea that the sun is the gravitational center of the solar system. He did not come up with that. Other thinkers had already proposed this idea for various reasons, notably the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus in uh, in I believe 1543 or in the 1540s. He lived uh, 1473 to uh, 1543. But Copernican heliocentrism Centrism, while it had its defenders, had not been accepted by the Catholic Church, had not been accepted by the uh, all the academic authorities of the day. I think the reigning expert opinion still viewed the universe much the way Aristotle did with an Earth-centered solar system with special types of motion for the objects in the heavens, with celestial spheres that held up the planets as they orbited the Earth out in space— so at the age of 27, Galileo was appointed a professor of mathematics at the University of Padua. And he uh, would go on to challenge many of the strains of thinking about physics and astronomy that had been dominant in European history, often these beliefs passed on by Aristotle. So one example of the way he challenged these things was uh, his important discoveries in the physics of motion and inertia. I think just in the past year, Robert, we did an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind where we talked about Galileo's thought experiment about the falling bodies, you know, where where he was identifying – the idea that the, the rate of acceleration for falling objects is actually the same between lighter objects and heavier objects except for the influence of air resistance. But another question that's interesting about inertia that was addressed by Galileo is the idea of um, how, how do you tell – how would you tell if the earth was rotating? If you're on the surface of the earth and it's spinning. Let's say you're, you're sort of a shoot from the hip – 17th century conventional physicist, you want to argue? It's obvious the Earth doesn't rotate because if you throw a ball straight up in the air, and the Earth were rotating, the ball should land west of where you tossed it from, right? Because the Earth should continue to rotate under it while the ball is up in the air,
1: right? This is kind of like a like a carnival ride um, understanding of how the, the Earth's rotation would work. But Galileo's got a good answer for this. It
0: doesn't fall away from you if the ball and the earth and the atmosphere are all moving together at the same rate in the same direction. This is a crucial bit of reasoning about inertial reference frames. In the world of motion, difference means acceleration. If there are a group of objects all moving in the same direction at the same speed, they might as well be standing still with reference to each other. It's only when the speed or the direction changes in the motion that we notice the difference. So you throw a ball straight up in the air uh, on a rotating earth. It's actually like throwing a ball straight up in the air inside an airplane, right? If you were able to like take a cross section of the airplane Mm -hmm. and look at the path of the ball and you were standing still just looking at it pass by, The ball would go in an arc, right? Because it would go up from the person's hand. But also everything in the plane, including the ball, is going –
1: horizontally. Right. You don't throw the ball up in the airplane. Well, first of all, don't throw balls in the airplane. Right. <laughs> but if you throw a ball up in the airplane, it's not going to just go flying, uh, you know, straight back through the, uh, the through the, uh, the the plane and then smack into the, the, the door of the toilet. Exactly,
0: because the airplane, the air inside the airplane and the ball and the person throwing it are all within the same reference frame of horizontal motion. They're all traveling at the same speed in the same direction. So relative to the person in the plane, the ball just goes up and down and the same Thing happens on Earth's surface. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were looking out from space, a ball thrown straight up from the Earth's surface actually does go in an arc. But relative to the person standing there who threw it up, who's moving at the same speed and the around the uh, around the center of rotation of the Earth, it just goes straight up and down. So so that's the realm of like physics and inertia in which Galileo was very influential and very important. But Galileo also found out about the invention of the telescope in the Netherlands. And he almost immediately had the insight to turn the magnification power of the telescope to the night sky. And he also using his engineering skills, he uh, made improvements to the design of the primordial telescope to increase its power. He eventually – I think it uh, – Within just a couple of months, he had scaled it up to twenty times magnification. Uh, so I guess we should discuss a couple of the examples of what Galileo saw when he looked through the telescope and how it provided evidence that changed the dominant strains of thinking of, uh, about
1: the universe. Now, one of his first observations was the moon. Yeah, I mean what, that's that's going to be the first thing you're going to look at. You, you know better than to look at the sun. But there's the moon. Let's take a closer look.
0: I mean, what's there to learn about the moon? We can all see the moon, right? That's like the moon's fact. right there. It just seems like what what should you be able to learn about the moon that would be revolutionary by looking at it in a magnified way? But I, I thought this was really interesting. So in December of sixteen oh nine, he, he observed the moon through the telescope and of course humans have been gazing at the moon at night for a long time. But a common belief in the geocentric cosmology of the time was that the moon and other objects above the lunar sphere, this was a, you know, a, a designation of a certain area around the earth in the heavens, that the stuff in the lunar sphere and above, it was perfect, which would mean perfectly smooth sort of featureless heavenly spheres. So. While we could see patterns of changes in the coloration of the moon from the earth with the naked eye, many imagine the moon to be sort of like a heavenly ball bearing, but What did Galileo see when he looked at the moon? Well, specifically, he made observations of the Terminator line. This is the division between day and night on a partially illuminated moon. So you're seeing, you know, part of the moon is lit up by the sun and part of it is the nighttime part of the moon. And we're seeing that horizon of sunrise or sunset from the earth. If you've ever looked at this, what is the line like? Well, of course, it's jagged. Mm. Hmm, And that's – it's jagged because the surface of the moon is textured with mountains and valleys and craters of different elevations which catch the light of the sunrise or the sunset differently and cast longer or shorter shadows. The surface of the moon was a terrain like the surface of the earth, making it seem like maybe the moon and the earth are not actually special examples of fundamentally different universal essences or spheres of being – but instead, are similar chunks of matter obeying the same physical laws?
1: So, in other words, it was almost almost like we've discussed on uh, at least on stuff to blow your mind, like you know older models of the moon as being like some sort of a mirror-like object, or certainly mm-hmm. here like a holy ball bearing. And basically, he's looking at the moon and seeing that the moon is, is at least Earth-like on the surface. Like it is, it is Earth-like in a in, not in the sense that it you know has trees or life or canals mm. or anything. But is it the very least like it's, it seems to be made of a sort of dirt or rock?
0: It is land. Yeah. yeah. It has terrain. It has mountains. It has craters. There's stuff going on there. Uh, so that – yeah, that, that's an interesting point of analogy. Then I think the the really big observation came with Jupiter. So this would have been uh, I guess just like a month later in January of 1610. Galileo was making observations of, of Jupiter and to be perfectly clear. Galileo did not discover Jupiter. We mentioned earlier that the you know the planets uh, up to Uranus had been known about for a long time. They could be seen with the naked eye. Jupiter is bright enough to see with the naked eye under the right conditions as a point of light. So people would have known about Jupiter since ancient times. What made Galileo's observations of Jupiter special was that when viewed through his upgraded telescope, Jupiter's sort of single point of light became Four points of light.
1: Ah, bringing us back to the moons we were discussing earlier.
0: Yeah, exactly. So he saw he saw these points of light in a straight line alongside Jupiter, like as if mounted on a rod going through the equator of the greater planet. So first he made a note and decided, okay, I guess maybe these are stars, but I'll, I'll come back and check later. And uh, if they were background stars, by the time he came back to check again later, they should have moved along with the rest of the background star field, you know, because Jupiter would be closer and it's moving along, uh, you know, independent of the stars. But instead, he found that these other stars stuck to Jupiter like glue and that also they moved. They moved back and forth as if along this rod stringing them to the planet. And later he discovered that there was a fourth star in, in this line along with Jupiter, in addition to the three he'd already seen. This naturally suggested a radical conclusion, which is that Jupiter has satellites. Mm. And we now know these, yeah, as the Galilean moons of Jupiter. We did a whole episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about them. It's Io, Ganymede, Europa, and Callisto. And these are moons. But what was undeniable at the time was that this other planet had satellites orbiting it the same way that Earth did. The same way the Earth has a moon, Jupiter has moons. So if there were moons orbiting Jupiter, then it's really hard to keep swinging your sword for the cosmological uniqueness of Earth in the geocentric model. Like – It's clear evidence that there is at least one other center of motion in the universe, and it's Jupiter. And if Jupiter can be a center of motion, why can't the sun be a center of motion?
1: Right. It ultimately ends up simplifying your attempts to to get a grasp on uh, the, the celestial mechanics of your immediate neighborhood.
0: Yeah, now, like with the invention of the telescope, the credit for the discovery of the moons of Jupiter, I think is also somewhat historically disputed i've read that there's there's some attempts to credit the German astronomer Simon Marius, who I think has also been credited as maybe a sort of inventor of the telescope. Um, it's uh, it's also been suggested that the ancient Chinese astronomer Gan De might have seen one of the moons of Jupiter or seen the moons of Jupiter when he described in the fourth century BCE having seen a small object next to Jupiter. Uh, and and technically, I think if it, you, the conditions are just right, it's kind of like with seeing Uranus, right? Like mm-hmm. if it's just right, you might be able to make out the moons of Jupiter with the naked eye, but it's it's
1: tough. It's it's hard to do. But with the telescope, it becomes predictable. Oh, yeah. You know that you can point the telescope at Jupiter and see these bodies. It's not like, you know, it's glimpsing something that may or may not be there. Yeah. Though of course, that, you know, that still that becomes an issue with the telescope and astronomy in general, uh, you know, in the, the period to follow. Uh, we've discussed that on, uh, on our shows before as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so Galileo's progress in astronomy and physics, I think— it helped pave the way for the revolutionary work of other scientists like Isaac Newton. You know, who who picked up the torch of this idea of the uniformity of physical laws, showing that one thing Newton showed was that the same physical laws that govern the path of a cannonball on Earth also govern the motions of the planets and the comets, right? Universal gravitation, that, that's the big Newtonian breakthrough. There's no special physics or special essences for the heavens. It's just matter and energy obeying the same underlying laws of physics. And I think the telescope was what allowed the empirical observations that gave way to that way of seeing the world. It made it possible. The telescope showed us that up
1: there was like down here, and it could be understood. Now, the telescope and the microscope are, 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 like we said, are their twin technologies in many ways. And they have, I think, together led to changes that have drastically changed our understanding of our place in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always come back to uh, the wonderful documentary short, The Powers of Ten uh, by Charles and Ray Eames from 1977. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's readily available on YouTube. So if you have not seen it, go, go watch it now. Uh, and you know, stop listening to this podcast. Go watch Powers of Ten, and then come back. Because mm-hmm. it, it even today, you know, it, it effectively conveys the scale. Of the physical universe via orders of magnitude, and these technologies—the telescope and the microscope—they've enabled us to begin a journey both inward and outward. And while you know we might have thought you know previously you could essentially like hold up a, uh, a telescope and oh you'd be able to you know glimpse the the barricades of heaven, the limits mm-hmm. of uh, of the universe. But it's uh, but what's been more amazing is that that we either the the absence of those barriers or our inability to glimpse such limits on a cosmos that's. Utter on a scale beyond anything we've evolved to comprehend, uh, modern astronomy is is entirely dependent though, upon this technological step, the invention yeah. of the telescope.
0: Now, we've gone a long way since the simple glass refraction telescope, which, you know, bent light through a transparent medium. Even optical telescopes now that are just using visible light mm-hmm. tend to be more on the basis of mirrors because it's easier to magnify more that way. It's a re- reflection instead of refraction. But there are also tons of other types of telescopes that aren't even looking at visible light
1: anymore. Right. I mean, you've got uh, radio telescopes, X-ray telescopes, gamma-ray telescopes, cosmic ray telescopes, so, you know, there's a tremendous amount of human achievement in space exploration that you can lump under the legacy column for the telescope. Yeah. Uh, again, it's just really hard to overstate the importance of this invention. Uh, but then there are also a number of telescope-based technologies and gadgets to consider that mm. are maybe a little more, uh, you know, rooted in um, in terrestrial existence. Uh, consider uh, the uh, sextant, for example, which depends on a telescope and enabled uh, navigators to measure the angle between an astronomical object and the horizon, a key for celestial navigation and Mm -hmm. sea. Another is the theodolite. Uh, This is an optical instrument that uh, is used to measure angles between points. And you've all seen this before, uh, probably driving around watching surveyors at work. Mm -hmm. It's used in surveying, it's used in construction, also used in meteorology and rocketry. But it would not be possible without basic telescope uh, technology. Mm And uh, on on a much lesser note, or maybe not a lesser note, uh, the telescope is also a predecessor to the kaleidoscope, Oh. <laughs> which uh, you know is a fun uh, gadget that I actually would wouldn't mind doing a whole episode on. But it was invented in the early 19th century by the Scottish scientist David Brewster, a noted optics expert himself, who also invented and improved uh, a stereoscope, uh, you know, stereo viewers, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and also a binocular camera and other optical inventions uh it, it, yeah once you start going down the rabbit hole of looking at like improvements and in optical technology and new optical technology innovations and inventions uh you know it, it really gets gets fascinating yeah
0: uh yeah and it, it's I mean, the telescope. I think you it would not be wrong to say that it changed the world. Right. Uh, I I don't want to put everything on the telescope and not say and say that there were not other influences. But I think the telescope was one of the most important things that led to this change in our, in our way of thinking about the universe. That said. Uh, you know the that phenomena everywhere can be understood by appealing to universal laws and not necessarily like special circumstances that that can't be understood from our point of view
1: right yeah and uh, and again it's it's such a fascinating one too because it's 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 a situation where, uh, like, you know, all the elements were there, all you know, the technology was available. And then it's, it, you know, looking back in retrospect, uh, you know, we, we, can, we can look at the timeline and say, like, you know, who's going to do it? Why, why have they not invented it yet? Why is the telescope not changing the world yet? And then the moment occurs and, uh, and the world changes.
0: Well, you already mentioned this, but I am very interested in, in actually going backward in this story. Uh to sometime in the future, come back to earlier moments of of breakthroughs in optics uh, mm-hmm. and refraction lenses, the creation of spectacles, for example,
1: spectacles is a key one uh now we have done a previous episode on sunglasses, yeah uh so which gets a little bit into the the into the spectacles area, mm-hmm. but not completely.
0: Oh, I should have mentioned this, I can't believe I forgot when we were talking about giovanni della uh, uh Giovanni. Batista de la Porta, uh, he apparently proposed some changes, I think, to the camera obscura. I don't know if he was the first person to do this, but I think he proposed a camera obscura with a lens on it as opposed to just a pinhole.
1: Basically, what we're saying is that eventually on Invention, we will cover the complete history of uh, optical technology. Uh-huh. Uh, because there's a lot, there's a lot, can, and again, it comes back to what we are. And so we're such highly visual creatures uh-huh. that optical technology uh, is, of course, uh, groundbreaking. It is, of course, world-changing, uh, be it the way the, you know, the, the motion picture changed the world or mm-hmm. the way that the telescope changed the world.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm also feeling a little bit of regret that we – maybe maybe in this episode we went too far with the egg-based c- cryptography and, <laughs> and barred ourselves the opportunity to do a whole episode on egg-based cryptography in the future.
1: I don't know. There could be more. I don't know. <laughs> this is my my introduction uh, to egg-based cryptography. So uh, we'll, we'll perhaps there's a, there's a whole episode's worth of additional data out there we should consider or just egg technology in general, right? hmm who invented that wire slicer
0: thing for your hard-boiled eggs?
1: <laughs> oh, you know, this is actually – you bring this up. Uh, unitaskers is the, the term that's uh, oh, sometimes yeah. used for kitchen devices like this. Alden um, Brown you see, uses is it, that. Alden Brown – I don't know if he, he coin coined it, the term, okay. but he
0: uses it all the time. He he, he loathes unitaskers. <laughs>
1: uh, I, you know, it depends on the unitaskers. Some of them I, I love but I, I would actually love to do an episode where we just look at different unitasker devices mm-hmm. you know because those are kind of like the ultimate in invention right where you have you've 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 come up with with with, with this device that doesn't really change the world it what changes the world in very small and specific mm-hmm. ways such as cutting down the time it takes to slice a boiled egg into uh several pieces
0: uh not just cutting down the time also ensuring regularity in the width <laughs> of slices yeah I, I'm also generally against unitaskers, but there are a few I can probably think of that I get into.
1: Every time I use a spatula, I, I wonder like what is the like the full history of the spatula? <laughs> How did we get to this point? Uh-huh And then I forget to look into it afterwards.
0: No, yeah, the difference is, uh, the history of cooking culture is really interesting, like uh, like using
1: chopsticks to cook versus using them to eat. You know? yeah, We've yeah talked about that yeah, yeah that was a previous episode of invention. All right. So as as you can tell, uh, we're open to all manner of subjects here on invention, and we would love to hear from you if you have any particular requests. If there's a unitasker out there, uh, you know that we should uh, you know give due diligence on the show. Let us know. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, uh, head on over to InventionPod.com. That's where you'll find them all. And remember, the most important thing you can do to support this show and ensure we keep uh, uh, delivering it to you is to make sure you have subscribed to it somewhere. And then make sure that you have uh, left a review uh, and a rating if that is at all possible.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hi, you can email us at contact.inventionpod.com. At
2: Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. the first time, every time, all your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash.
1: Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only.
2: Exclusions apply. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May live on NFL network, ESPN two and streaming on NFL plus terms and conditions apply to NFL plus visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Amy Brown from four things with Amy Brown today. Healthier is happening at CVS health in more ways than you've ever seen.